you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we have got ourselves an interesting and exciting passage today, don't we? Do we think that Pastor Chad gave this to me intentionally? <laughs> Uh, Brad always jokes that I give him the children's sermons about death, so it's come back around, but I'm glad that Kathy addressed it, so we're going to focus on the other stuff. (laughs) Um, But the Ark of the Covenant is processing into the city, and King David is dancing for joy. Um, The Ark of the Covenant isn't something that we always talk about, so I did want to spend a little bit of time before we dive in, and let me just tell you, I did watch Indiana Jones as a child, and... The face is melting off is still scarred to my brain. (laughs) So I'm glad no one's watched it here. (laughs) Um, But what is the Ark of the Covenant and why should it be in Jerusalem? The Ark is something that represented God's presence and it existed as even more than a symbol. And what David does with it is of great importance. And we've been following David's story for a while now from defeating Goliath uh, to Saul's downfall and death uh, to David being crowned king last week. So what's, what's David's first move? My brother says, what's the move? <laughs> but his first couple of moves are both politically and theologically charged actions. He first recovers this legendary ark, and second, he moves it into the city of Jerusalem that he's trying to make the city, the capital. Um, We haven't heard about the Ark since 1 Samuel, uh, when it's captured by the Philistines. Um, And the the Ark has kind of been forgotten. That's why we don't hear about it much in church, because it's not talked about all that often in the Old Testament. But it first comes into the picture in Exodus, when God tells Moses to have it made and to put the tablets of the Ten Commandments in it. And Kathy excellently told us all about the shape and what it was made out of. But when they left Mount Sinai, the ark went with them, and so God's presence went with them wherever they went. It's not spoken of, like again, uh, we haven't heard about it since this battle uh, when the Philistines take it afterwards, but they end up happily giving it it back. While while their faces weren't melting off, (laughs) there were plagues going around and uh, lots of bad things were happening, so they were like, all right, we're going to give this back. And so it stays in a little town in Judah, and that's where our story finds us today. David goes to the city in Judah and uh, recovers it and brings it to um, the political capital. This is the political move, but it also is to reestablish God as ruler. Um, This is what makes Jerusalem the religious capital of Israel. And it was very significant because in the eyes of Israel, it was a very unifying act for both the north and the south. So it gets David's rule off on a really good start. And throughout our passage today, we see the power of God's presence and holiness. And it has really caused me to examine my life and what my posture towards God is. Because what we see David do in response 
is, is to put God in the center of Israel. He's the leader. He's leading this God's country, God's people, um, and he's starting off on the right foot. He is making God the priority. While Saul, the king before him, you know, put power and status and good looks and himself at the center, David is putting God at the center. And what follows is that he dances with joy. All right, raise your hand if you like to dance. Okay, there's a, okay, good, I'm not alone in this. I love to dance. I am not good at dancing. If you don't like to dance, do you at least like to throw your arms up and cheer for your sports team when something good happens? Yeah? <laughs> there, we respond in joy, and maybe that's dancing, maybe that's just a, a fist bump, um, but we, we have a natural response to joy. And when something amazing happens, we have a reaction and we release it. We either release it or we suppress it. And I think that's something that us Methodists do a little bit when it comes to our reaction to God. <laughs> I think we, we don't wanna be embarrassed, we don't wanna look foolish. And I asked our Andover professional dancer, Piper Crouch, what it felt like to dance. You got to witness some of it during our children's sermon. Um, but her response was that she feels happy and free and that she can make things up as she goes just based on how she feels. And I think that is the perfect description of to just respond in dancing when we see God moving in the world. Um, and I think there's so much truth to this even, even beyond the church. Um, don't judge me, but I'm going to bring up Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> but there's a, there's a term in Grey's Anatomy where they say, we're going to dance it out. And no matter what they're feeling, sad, happy, angry, they dance it out. And none of those doctors can dance with any skill, but they dance. And we know from the Psalms that David knew how to feel. He knew how to explore what he was feeling, uh, no matter how high or how low. And this is a very high point, and he is releasing so much joy that Saul's daughter, Michael, gets pretty judgy about it. Um, a very high point in my life was the, was the day that I married Michael. Of course, it's a huge day of celebration. And I, I did my best to do everything I was supposed to do, to do, you know, greet all the guests, but mainly I was there to dance to the point where my photographer said, hey, we're gonna go do the, we didn't have a cake, but we did like a, we were gonna do a donut, feed each other a donut. I was like, no, I'm gonna keep dancing. <laughs> I, I was there to dance. Um, and much to my parents' chagrin, they probably would have preferred me to mingle a little bit more. At 8.45, I, I mingled for a couple hours. At 8.45, I was on the dance floor, and I told everyone ahead of time that if you, if you wanna talk to me, you can come dance with me. <laughs> but I, I love to dance, and I wanted to celebrate. And part of me kind of wonders, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm in ministry, do, was, were there any of Saul's daughters at my wedding? Were they like, isn't she a pastor? Why is she dancing? Why is she having so much fun? Um, but something that, lo I, that I loved and meant a lot to me was that the pastor who officiated our wedding was on the dance floor with me. She did a wonderful job during our service, and then she was on the dance floor doing the wobble with me. <laughs> um, but, you know, while we're people of the cloth, we, we also like to celebrate and we like to dance just like David. And especially on this day where a covenant was made between God, Michael, and me, um, the pastor did a wonderful job of portraying how important um, our relationship with God is in our marriage. And so I love this picture of going from, you know, preaching this amazing word and giving glory to God and then going and dancing with joy, which is exactly what we see in this passage. God is made the center of Israel's life and David's response is to dance with joy. I ex also experienced this level of joy this very week as I helped out with Nathaniel's 
the Nathaniel Missions summer camp. And to be a little honest, I was a little anxious going into it. I was teaching the Bible lesson every day, um, and I just, it was a new situation. I didn't know what the room was going to look like. I didn't know the kids. I was just, you know, your normal jitters when you don't know what you're going to be walking into. Um, But as soon as I got there, the kids were so sweet. And on the first day, I met a young girl who was also really anxious, and it came out and kind of an anger and resentment towards being there. It was also her first experience with Nathaniel Mission. Um, But each day I opened with a song and dancing, and there was something about it that calmed me down and prepared me for the message I had that day. A message that told these kids that they have a home with God, that the creator of the universe loves them so much and knows them, and that he gives us good gifts, and that we are a gift to one another. Um, But it was so good to, you know, shake off the nerves before getting into the the message. And maybe I should have danced before I got up here and preached. (laughs) Shake off the nerves. (laughs) But the kids screaming the songs and laughing and being goofy was just such a release. It was so good. And the anxious girl had the same experience. um, Because when she had first gotten there, she'd expressed, I don't want to be here. I want to go home. I want to be with my mom. Um, but during, in the midst of dancing, she went and grabbed the main leader of the camp and with a huge smile on her face said, I'm having so much fun. I want to come back tomorrow. Um, so I think that God was definitely present in those moments and preparing me for the message and for calming down this girl and helping her to feel safe and joy in the midst of a new and scary situation. So I, I absolutely think that God created dance and music as a gift to us. And there are all sorts of studies about the endorphins that are released and the way they're connected to our emotions. Um, And I just, I find it fascinating. And I I kind of hate that there are some Christian circles that, um, you know, think studying the sciences takes us away from God because I think it does the exact opposite. I think it reveals so much about God's heart for creation. It's so intentional and so beautiful. And it's also why I loved hearing, I'm talking about my husband a lot, I'm sorry, but I loved hearing Michael's sermon because he had both a theological background and a psychological background um, that he brought to his message. So my homework for you this week is to find time to dance. (laughs) Just kidding, kind of. (laughs) But I do invite you to examine your life and to ask yourself, what is at the center I often find at the center of my life, my marriage, my friendships, my work, my to-do list. But can we imagine together what it would look like for God to truly be at the center? Why was David responding in this way? What was he experiencing with God in this moment to make him act in such an unking-like way? Can we imagine Queen Elizabeth doing something like super political and then dancing like a crazy person? I I, I cannot. (laughs) Um, But that is what's going on here. David, as king, was allowing both the influence of the prophets and the priests um, to influence the way that he treated the Ark of the Covenant. He treated it with great reverence and honor, and he wanted God's presence to be in their midst. So he worked closely with those who were close to God, and I, I love that about his leadership. But in reflecting on David's actions here, let's ask ourselves, better yet, let's ask God in prayer, to help us move him to the center of our worlds, the center of our families, the center of our church. And imagine the fruit and the pure joy that would follow. The joy that isn't the fake happiness that we get from being pleasantly numb, but the joy that we feel deep in our soul and our gut that comes from seeking truth instead of illusion, that grieves instead of denies, 
and who hopes rather than living and existing in utter despair. This idea comes from one of my favorite Christian authors, Walter Brueggemann, and in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, he talks about just the passion that we see in David, the grief and the anguish and the joy that we find in his life and in the Psalms. And he compares it to who comes next, his son Solomon. Solomon embodies this numbness and a loss of passion. The man had everything. Israel is thriving, he's wealthy, he's powerful, yet everything is still meaningless to him. And Brueggemann quotes um, a few verses from Ecclesiastes 1 that I'm going to read from the, the message version, but just listen to the emptiness and just the lack of passion. Smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything, it's all smoke. What's there to show for a lifetime of work, a lifetime of working your fingers to the bone? One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. Then it does it again and again, the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north, around and around and around it blows. Blowing this way, then that, the whirling erratic wind. All the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing in the same old place and then start all over and do it again. Everything's boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What will be again? What was will be again. What happened will happen again. There's nothing new on this earth. Year after year, it's the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new? Don't get excited, it's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday and the things that will happen tomorrow. Nobody will remember them either. Don't count on them being remembered. Blah, right? (laughs) Everything's boring, everything will just happen over and over again. How is this David's son? What David does instead is he cuts through the numbness. He walks through self-deception to declare that God is our Lord. And when I was studying this passage, I found out that Psalm 132 is kind of a liturgy for the procession of, ark, of the ark into Israel, to the, center of, to the center of life. So I want to read this and notice the passion that David has for God compared to what we just read in Ecclesiastes. Lord, remember David, all the ways he suffered and how he swore to the Lord, how he promised the strong one of Jacob, I won't enter my house, won't get into my bed, I won't let my eyes close, I won't let my eyelids sleep until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the strong one of Jacob. Yes, we heard about it. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let's enter God's dwelling place. Let's worship at the place God rests his feet. Get up, Lord, go to your residence, you and your powerful covenant chest. Let your priests be dressed with righteousness. Let your faithful shout out with joy. And for the sake of your servant, David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a true promise that God won't take back. I will put one of your own children on your throne, and if your children keep my covenant and the laws I will teach them, then your children too will will rule on the throne forever. Because the Lord has chose Zion, he wanted it for his home. This is my residence forever. I will live here because I wanted it for myself. I will most certainly bless its food supply. I will fill its needy full of food. I will dress its priests in salvation, and its faithful will shout out loud with joy. It is there that I will make David's strength thrive. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed one there. 
I will dress his enemies in shame, but the crown he wears will shine. So what we hear in this psalm is an articulation of Israel's conviction for the rule of God. It looks to God before government. It looks to God before everything. God is in the midst of his people and the scriptures reveal this to us over and over again to when we finally have God revealed in human flesh, Jesus. Jesus shows us what it truly looks like for God to live amidst his people. And the Holy Spirit continues this work with the church presently. David's response to God being in the center is utter giddiness and joy. He has this full feeling in his soul and in his gut. When we we look towards God and what he's doing in our midst, we can find that joy. When we focus on the world, which is so easy to do, and what the world has to offer, our response might look more like Solomon's or Saul's daughter, Michael, where we slip into despair and we can slip into the judgment of others who have that giddiness of in response to God. So let our prayer be that God would be in our midst, that God would be at the center, and that the church would look to God with reverence as God lives and moves among us. Let's look to God more than to what the world has to offer. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the many things that you did through David. Help us to see where you're working in our midst. Help us to put you at the center and to respond with a deep joy. Be with us this week, and may uh, we follow um, you and respond to this word. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.